Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody today? We uh, started a little bit later. I'll give it a few more minutes to let people get inside here. Hopefully that storm didn't deter too many this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, the last book, Revelation, last chapter, I guess I should say, Revelation. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 today. Uh, next week, the lesson will be verses 10 through 21. So next week, Dave will be teaching Revelation 22, verses 10 through 21. How long do we expect to live in today's day and age? How long? On, statistically speaking, not how long you think you're going to live, because we all have higher hopes for ourselves probably. <laughs> but, okay, 70s, 80s, what? How? 80, okay. Anybody else want to give themselves a little bit more time? <laughs> I don't know about you, but this, the way the world's going, I'm like, come on, come, just come Christ and let's get it over with. <laughs> Every, we'll, uh, we'll be better off, but there's a lot of work to still be done. Um, Paul dealt with that, didn't he? he? He talked about how he wished he could be with Christ, but he knew there was more that, that needed to be done. And uh, we need to have that same hope, uh, but also expectation that we're going to work as hard as we can until that final day does come for us, whether we die or whether Christ returns. A person born in 1850 in America uh, had an average life expectancy. I'll, I'll let you guess. About how long do you think? 45. Close. Very close. 40. If you were born in 1850, you had about a 40-year lifespan. And um, that may be why uh, we see so many in the, the late 1700s, early 1800s, we, we see very prominent individuals at a very young age. People accomplished a lot because they, they knew, oh, I've only got a few decades here. I, I need to do whatever I can. Uh, so you, we go back and, and just research some of the great people in the history of our country. There were some young guys that were signers of the Declaration, and uh, just men that, that did a lot by the time they were, say, 30 years old or so. Uh, that statistic is skewed a little bit by the infant mortality rate. Those born in 1850 who managed to live to be at least five years old could expect to live into their mid-50s. So if you passed the five-year-old mark, then you had a little bit better chance of, of uh, living longer, huh? Obviously. Um, there are many diseases and illnesses that claimed the lives of young children uh, which we don't deal with today. Today, the U.S. life expectancy is 78.6 years on average. But it varies depending on your uh, gender, your location, uh, nationality, other, and other factors. The sharp increase is due to better medical treatment, the chlorination of drinking water, and uh, other, um, I guess, sanitary type things that, that we've done to, to clean up our cities and the streets. And uh, so we're not exposed to so many things that can cause illness and disease. 
Yet some people want to extend their lives even further. They work hard to eat healthy, maintain high fitness levels. Predictions are that we will continue to see a greater percentage of our citizens live possibly into their 80s and 90s, even as over 100 years old, uh, more than ever before. The, The Bible tells the story of the paradise of Eden that was lost to humanity because of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were expelled from the garden. And since then, death has been a certainty for everyone born ever since, except for two. There there were only two. Who were they? Enoch. Enoch. Who else? Remember remember the other prophet? Elijah. Elijah. Yes. So we got two that didn't have to experience physical death. Christ, yes, he, he didn't have to experience the second time, but... The first time, he did have to experience death. So he knows the agony and the the torture that can be associated with death. Um, Hopefully, all of us will have that opportunity to just peacefully pass away in our sleep. I pray that's how I I go one day. That would be ideal. Just be sleeping and just, next thing you know, you're in heaven. Or with with the Lord, at least. But... um, the, uh, the expectation is that we're going to have to deal with death. And uh, unless Christ returns during our lifetime, every single one of us are going to have to do that. And so we hope for something better. We hope for, for life evermore. A feature of the New Jerusalem drawn from the Old Testament is the tree of life. This mysterious tree is referred to in three books in the Bible. We first see the, the tree of life appear in the Garden of Eden. A tree of life is also mentioned four times in the book of Proverbs. And then the tree of life mentioned uh, in the book of Revelation is a primary feature of the paradise of God. There's there's also a mention of the tree of life in the book of Ezekiel, which we're going to look at a little bit later on. Some have referred to the paradise that is talked about in Revelation as Eden being restored as the people eat the fruit of the tree with God's blessing. Water is also closely associated with this tree in today's lesson. The image image of water is used in both a physical and spiritual sense. In a physical sense, fresh water has its opposite to brackish water or bitter water because fresh water sustains life. The brackish or salty water uh, cannot sustain life. The prophets Ezekiel and Zechariah had visions that bear similarities to John's vision in the New Jerusalem. A feature of the city foreseen in Ezekiel was a river flowing out from the middle of the city. In Revelation, the concept of spiritual water includes eternal life, and such water is seen as a divine gift, an ever-flowing fountain that provides life to those who drink from it. So let's take a look here. Revelation chapter 22. If we would, we'll start with uh, verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. So as we pick up here from last week's lesson, where lesson last week ended, we see John still inside this holy city, the New Jerusalem, it's referred to as. Um, who, how did he get there? Who, who led him there? Remember? 
Who was it that, that brings John to where he's at in this vision? Remember? Maybe just scan down through there quickly through the, uh, the text. An angel, yes. So he's still being led by the angel, the, showing him these characteristics of the city. Anybody remember? What are some of the, the characteristics of the city? Streets of gold. What else? Precious stones. Big, huge precious stones like, like we never see. Okay? We understand what they may look like, but some of these things, they're just enormous. What else is an identifying trait? Hey, walls of jasper, huge walls. What else? Gates made of a single pearl. I mean, we see little pearls, right? But anybody ever seen a gate made out of one single pearl? No. So these are things that are that we can imagine them, but they're they're beyond the scope of our reality and and what we witness in this life. As John beholds this river, his descriptions of it signify two things. Uh, what, is, what is, in particular, is characteristic of this river? What is it like, say? It's clear as crystal. Now, have you ever been anywhere where the water is like that? It's just, like, it looks like glass. I mean, it's almost as if it's not there. Now, no matter how, how clear the water is here, it's still not like I would describe as crystal because usually what, what is in, in a stream, even if it's a very clear stream, what, what are some of the things that are still there? Mud. That pollute, okay, you still have some mud sometimes. What else? Even if it's a, a rock bottom, very beautiful, clean stream, what else is still in there? Okay, you still got sticks, you still have some algae down in there, right? There's, there's something that is, is making it not crystal clear, okay? Now, th this is significant just because this water is not going to have that, that muddy or cloudy tinge to it at any time. Uh, there's no algae, there's, there's nothing that would be present that would be uh, stagnant in any way. And we can imagine that it, it didn't give off any bad smells, you know, like some, some water does. So it's just a signif signifying that this is a perfect place, that, the, the not, that even the water is going to be absolutely perfect. The city has pure gold streets and a river of pure water. The river's designation is the water of life. And it applies more than just a refreshing source of water. For the parched throat. What does that, what else does that signify? It's the water of life. What does that tell us about the, the contents of, of, of the water? What is it going to provide? Okay, it's going to be, but not just life how we have it here. Yes, it's me. Life's going to be a sustaining part of, of our diet and, and what we have for eternity, and and will help to uh, spiritually keep us living for eternal eternity. The water featured divine qualities. His vision here is that of a great complex, combined with a garden paradise, and no garden would be lush and inviting without an appropriate quantity of 
high-quality water. The verse continues, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. So John, he sees the river streaming from the central feature of the city. We can kind of imagine this this cube-shaped city, the pearls that are large enough to be carved as city gates, streets of transparent gold that we've never seen anything like that. We can imagine it. And likewise, this spring that's perfect, crystal clear, on top of this city, or at the, the, the uh, I guess, would be the crest of the city. If you're looking up, there's the throne of God, and then there's this river coming from that, from the seat of authority. And it's only something that we can wonder at, because none of us have actually physically seen anything like that. But we can imagine in our minds how marvelous and, and uh, how majestic this is. And it's difficult for us to visualize this river of life coming from this, this throne, flowing down through the middle of Main Street in this holy city. Maybe one way to imagine it is an immense street or a boulevard or some sort of, uh, of downtown uh, city street with a, a river coming right through it and lush vegetation on both sides of its banks. Perhaps we can imagine a street a couple of football fields wide with a a beautiful river coming through the middle. And the 50 yards wide on each side of that river are these golden lanes. This may give us an idea of proportions of what John has been able to see. And then this river of living water leads down to this tree of life. And it's a tree unlike anything that we've ever seen before. A massive tree extending its, its branches out, way out over the, the street, over the, the river. And its, its roots are uh, planted firmly into both sides of the banks. And what are, what are some ways that we could possibly interpret that? Because it's, it's hard for us to, to think about the tree, how big this tree is, but... Um, how many have ever seen or, or physically been to uh, the Sequoia Forest? Have you ever been out there? Nobody? That's some place I've always wanted to go. But I've seen pictures of it, these massive trees. And uh, what is, remember, what is one defining mark? What are, when you look at photos of the Sequoia trees, what's one photo that you usually see? Yes, the tree, there's, they've made a tunnel and there's a road going through it. It's maybe, think of that on even a, a larger scale, a much grander scale of a trunk, and there's this big lane going through it with this river coming down through the middle and this tree that has massive roots that's growing up over the top of that. I mean, it's just, it's a gargantuan tree that we can't even fathom how huge it is uh, because as we're going to learn later, it's got fruit on it that bears every single month. It's, it's got enough fruit on it to sustain everyone that's there in the city. It's got to be huge. This tree has to be just absolutely massive. And so it's something to wonder at and to try to to imagine, but it's unlike anything that we've ever been able to see. This vision that John has of this this complex uh, in the city is similar to Ezekiel's vision of a great river flowing from a restored Jerusalem temple to transform the Dead Sea. And the prophet saw this river lined on both sides 
with many trees. Let's look back at Ezekiel chapter 47. Some think that this is a, a prophecy that Ezekiel uh, was given. That's a similar, it, it, he's talking about the same types of things, maybe a foreshadowing of this prophecy uh, that John has. Ezekiel chapter 47. If we look at verse 6. And he asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the uh, Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows, and there will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So the, where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Engalim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. And that's kind of an, a neat picture. Uh, there's going to be fishermen lined up on both sides of the river and there's going to be all kinds of fish. And, and uh, you know, I, I, being a fisherman, I'd like to think that that, that river of life is going to have some nice big huge trout in it someday. And be able to, to, you know, it's not just going to be a place to sit back and just be, oh, well, that's, there's a nice river there. It, I, th I think there's going to be a lot of interaction, a, a lot of, uh, of time to fellowship with others, you know, doing those things that we love to do here in this life. And, and that, that river, that boulevard where the tree of life is, can you imagine just a, a, a hub of, of activity? where the saints are going to be dwelling with one another and with God and, and, and with all those that have gone before us forever and ever and ever and ever. I mean, you imagine the conversations that will take place along that river and the, the times that we'll be able to enjoy with, with fellow Christian brothers and sisters uh, along that river. It's having a, a picnic for the whole day and just hanging and then choose another family to go and do something with the next day. It's just, there are just so many things that we can think about that that can, can happen along that river and in this place. So I like the, what Ezekiel adds there. And you're going to see the similarities as we read this passage as to how the, the tree is there. It's going to bear fruit every month and how that, that fruit's there for the healing of the nations. We're going to discuss that a little bit as well. So very similar uh, language that's used. And some believe that is what John saw here. And that, uh, that we could take the tree in a plural sense as being a forest or grove of trees. And some, some think that that may be what's uh, being spoken of here. But John describes a tree of life somehow being on both sides of the river, perhaps spanning it, perhaps towering over it. It's a gigantic tree, nonetheless. And his powerful roots spring up from each side of the river and support the mighty trunk and its branches. 
And this makes its fruit and leaves easily accessible to those who are there in the city that they can take from this tree whenever they need. It's a supernatural tree planted by the Lord. Verse 2 says, bearing 12 crops of fruit. If we continue with verse 2, actually, we need to read. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life, and bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. So John saw this fruit-bearing tree, but in a way unlike any of the trees that we have in, in our experience. And when Today, when you, you plant a tree, a fruit tree, when do you expect to get some fruit? Maybe a couple of years, yeah, if you take care of it and you fertilize it and it's, it's trained correctly, right? you may get a little bit of fruit. But when do you expect to really get some decent fruit from a fruit tree? So you plant a pear tree or an apple tree. Probably, probably five, six years or so, and you finally get a decent-sized tree where you're going to get you know, a certain amount of fruit. Up until that point, those that, that grow fruit trees, um, and when, if, you, if you were to talk to a fruit tree farmer, um, when they plant young trees, they actually take the fruit off while the tree's young to help encourage that vegetative growth, make the tree get larger, and so it's not concentrating its energy on the fruit. So they actually make the, make the tree get larger physically before they start taking the fruit from it. Well, this tree, this particular tree, is going to bear fruit a lot more often than the fruit trees that we see. We know different months for picking various fruits. When, when is it that we, you pick apples? Okay, in the fall. Uh, when is it that you pick oranges? Yes, in our winter, yes. It usually be like January, February is a good time for them to, to pick oranges down south. There's different times to pick peaches and cherries and you know, whatever type of tree, but it's only good for a certain amount of time. Once that fruit's ripe, you have to get it off the tree, right? Or it's going to fall to the tree, to fall to the ground and it's going to deteriorate and it's not going to be any good. But we, we don't know of a tree that can bear 12 varieties of fruit, 12 different times of the year. Now, I've seen a few different types of trees where they maybe have grafted one, one or two other types of, of trees into a, one rootstock. They do that sometimes with ornamental citrus trees where you can have a, a grapefruit on it and maybe an orange and something else. And it's on the same trunk, but it's bearing different types of fruit. But this tree, it's bearing fruit constantly, every single month. And there's more than enough for the, the inhabitants of the city. And even so, an ever-bearing multi-fruit tree is one more feature of this new Jerusalem that exceeds anything in our experience. And the practical aspect of this is that this life-giving fruit will be available to the citizens of the city daily without interruption, without any shortage, that it, there will be plenty for all, at all times. The ending of verse 2 says, And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, that's an interesting statement uh, as well. Um, what does that make you think of? 
when you read that. Do we have any, have any tea drinkers? Okay, maybe aloe, something like aloe, but this is, aloe is more of a, a plant, right? It's not really a tree. But this, is, this, this tree has some sort of, of healing properties uh, in, in the tree. In modern life, we, we don't associate trees as being something uh, that have to do with healing. Uh, yet, we can consider that tea leaves are dried and they're boiled to obtain a liquid that has health properties. The idea presented in this verse before us seems to be that the leaves of this tree of life can be used to produce a healing of some sort, some, some kind of, uh, of liquid that may be of some type of healing effect. This healing is not stated to be for the curing of individual wounds or viruses. Rather, it's for the healing of the nations. And if we think about that, that phrase, what, what could that mean? What does he mean, the healing of the nations? What, what healing is going to have to take place? Okay, having a, a unity. What, what other type? What, 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 can you, what does that make you think of as far as the healing of the nations? Okay, everyone's go- there is going to get along with each other. Okay, there will be no sin. There's not going to be any lying. There's not going to be any pain. There's not going to be the things that are associated with, with wounds, either spiritual or physical. All that's going to be done away with. And uh, it'll be a, a place that's, that has a perfect environment for us to, to dwell. The final and lasting peace among all the nations. This city is truly the new Jerusalem, given that the word Salem actually means peace. So it'll be a a final place of peace forever and ever and ever. Verse 3, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. So the holy city is just that. It's holy. It admits neither anything that is cursed or anything that needs to, to be cursed. The, all the curses of humanity are gone. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 3. It's important to remind us of what caused the curse. Here we're at the very end of, of the book, of, of the Bible, and we're told the curse will be no more. At the beginning, we have the reason for that curse. Ultimately, what caused the, the curse to come? Sin. Sin, yes. But let's read it from Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to, to see what those specific curses were. So Genesis 3, let's start in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing 
very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so as we, we think about the original sin, the, the first sin, I guess I should say, and the curses that followed from that, uh, what are some of those things that happened? What occurred because of the introduction of sin into the world? Pain and childbirth. Okay, we had pain, pain and childbirth. What else? Okay, we're going to work harder. I mean, they had to work. They had to tend the garden, but work now becomes toil, becomes laborious and hard with thorns and thistles and, and the difficulty of the ground and whatever else may be associated with that. And the ground itself is cursed, isn't it? What else? What's that? The life, yes. Yeah, life is going to expire. And we have death to look forward to because of the curse. What else? Yeah. Yeah, they, they didn't walk with God anymore, did they? There's no, there's no unity with God any longer. There's, there's, it caused a separation between God and man. What else? What were some of the other consequences? Maybe not curses, but consequences of this fall. Okay, yes. The, the enmity between Satan's offspring and... And her offspring. What else? What's that? Okay, embarrassment. All right. So we have all these these things associated with shame and guilt, and uh, things like time. That's a big one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the yeah the the awareness between good and evil, and that that we we sin and we fall we we have violated God's command, and um, we've, uh, we've hurt God in that way. So there, there's much that happened because of that original curse, but in this city, there will no longer be any curse. All that's going to be done away with, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. And that is significant because God cannot dwell anywhere that sin is present. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The psalmist asks, asks that my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Psalm 42, verse 2. Well, the answer is in this verse. Everyone living in the city will have access to the throne. All residents of the city are God's servants. And John describes them in three ways. What they do what they see, and how they are marked. So what is it that they do? What, what's going to be our primary job, I guess, in this city? 
According to this verse, what does it say? Yes, we're going to worship God. Serve. Yes, we're going to serve Him. So this, it's not going to be boring, in other words. There's going to be things to do. There's going to, just like with Eden, there's going to be a lot, of, a, a lot of tending, a lot of upkeep, a lot of probably helping each other. And uh, so there'll, there'll be different ways that we can serve. And we will see His face. John doesn't specifically describe how that will happen um, or what his face looks like. But to see the face of a king in ancient times meant that you were given the gift of fellowship. Remember back what happened uh, with Esther. When, when she needed to go in and see the king, what, what was her fear? Yes, that she could die that if she went in unannounced by the king, right? And if he didn't hold out his scepter, what was going to happen? You're done for. So to be received in by the king was to have the gift of fellowship offered by the king. And so to, to see the face of our Lord and king is an extension of, of a gift of fellowship This will be fulfillment of Jesus' promise to those who have pure hearts. Remember Matthew 5.8, one of the Beatitudes. What does he say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Yeah. How they are marked is with God's name on their foreheads. This is a divine mark that's placed uh, by either Jesus or God's angels. It is a beautiful image of acceptance and possession by God, and it's opposite of the other mark that's referenced in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast that is placed on unbelievers. Verse 5 says, There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So this is referred to also in chapter 21, the fact that there will be no more light, or no more night, that God's going to be the, the light that is there. Light that's given off by God Himself illuminates the city. And now we have an important addition in this verse, that the never-ending light is accompanied by the never-ending reign of God's people. And this fulfills prophecies that we find back in the book of Daniel and also in Revelation chapter 1, as Christ will reign forever and ever and ever. <coughs> he mentions uh, in this, uh, this lesson a, uh, an illustration here, uh, a circumstance, I guess, uh, when he was a missionary in the Ukraine in the 1990s, there were many uncertainties And one of those was unreliable electric power, which was rationed. Power went off every night across the city, plunging everyone into darkness. People lamented that they would be in the middle of cooking dinner, and then everything would just go off and go dark. Make no mistake, what darkness was not the partial that darkness was not the partial darkness that Westerners experience when turning the lights off at home. When the electricity went off in the Ukraine, no street lamps 
were shining. No store signs blazed. No path was lit. For a few hours every night, people lived in silent and pitch black darkness. One could only light candles, hunker down, and wait for the power to come back on. He said, I remember going out to walk my dog in such darkness. She sometimes torpedoed down the front steps, too excited to wait for the flashlight, and I would then hear her scrambling because she had tripped. One time the lights went out as I walked up the stairs to a friend's apartment. I realized halfway up that I had lost count of what floor I was on, and I then heard another person coming down the stairs toward me. We both stopped, hoping not to collide as we inched our way along by listening to each other's breathing. There'll be no power outages, no darkness in the city of God. But what about now? Do you live and pray as if God's power is unreliable or limited? What can we do that shows we believe in a God that does the impossible? Because for us, just like the, the pearl that makes a single city gate, a single pearl makes a, a city gate, a tree of life that's undescribable, unlike anything we've ever seen. Streets of gold, a, a massive complex with a beautiful crystal clear river coming down through the middle of it. There's also going to be no darkness there, no night. And God himself is going to be the illuminating factor of the city. It's just We've never experienced anything like that, where there's a constant source of light all the time. I know there's been times here where I've come into the building. Uh, maybe you've been here by yourself sometimes uh, and, and come in and you walk down through the hallway. It's just very, very dark. It's super dark sometimes at night. And um, until you turn the light on, it's, it's kind of eerie. It's like, I hope there's nobody else in here <laughs> yeah. looking around the corner. And that, that's the way that you feel, though, in it, in when we're in darkness. There, there's an uncertainty that's about it. Right. And if you've ever been uh, lost somewhere and the, the lights go out the, and, or you have no no source of light, uh, maybe it's been out in the woods or wherever. It's an eerie feeling to be in total darkness or, or to be in a situation where there's very little light and you can barely see anything. There's a lot of ways you can trip over something and, and get hurt. Uh, you never know if there's somebody creeping around the corner. We're not going to have to have that, that fear any longer. And uh, we're, we're going to have the illumination that comes from God himself. And it's going to be there all the time, forevermore, because there's going to be no more night. There's going to be no need to change the light bulbs. And I looked up this morning in our kitchen. There's a light bulb out. So I'm like, Why is it so dark in here? And I'm going to have to do that because there's going to be plenty of light there and God Himself will give the light forever and ever. Verse 6 said, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So the speaker is still the angel of the bulls that's referenced back in chapter 21. He's John's guide to this holy city, taking him through and, and showing him in, in this vision what it looks like. The angel's statement touched on several things that we've read previously. First, it has the emphasis that what John heard is being trustworthy and true. 
And they are the same two affirmations by him who was seated on the throne at the beginning of the vision of the New Jerusalem. And second, the reliability and importance of these words are underlined by a particular reference. What, what does he say? How can we trust what is being told to us here? How is it that we can rely on the words that we read? Because God sent this angel to Okay, because it's direct from God, it's inspired, and, and what, who does he mention? It's inspired just like it was with... Who's he mentioned in the verse? The prophets, the prophets of old, just like they were inspired to speak the word of God. In some, some cases, to foretell the future. You can trust what I'm saying in the same way. The third concerns visions described as, John, as God's showing his servants the things that must soon take place. The, the wording in the Greek is precisely the same as that found in the book's opening lines in Revelation chapter 1. We may wonder why the angel promised that the things would happen shortly, when from our perspective we look back and about how long has it been since, since this has happened, since this was written. Yeah, about, about 2,000 years, almost. And we wonder, how, what does he mean? These things are going to happen shortly. Have they, have, have they already happened? Yeah, in some cases, yes. Yeah, some of this has, has already happened. I mean, he said that at the beginning of the book, that these things are going to take place. And some think that had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and, and the things that were going to happen around 70 A.D. as the church began and to, to grow. And... But a more likely explanation is that these events will happen quickly when they do come. You know, the things that, that we're not able to explain with, with history, they, they will happen very quickly when they do come to pass. They're being delayed for reasons that we don't understand completely. Only God does. And He's the one who controls them and how they're going to take place. Uh, let's, let's read 2 Peter. If someone could read for us. 2 Peter verses, or chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 8 and 9. Somebody you want to read that? Okay, go ahead, Josh. Verses 8 and 9. Yeah. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All right, so taking this verse along with what we just read about or just thought about anyway, but being 2,000 years. You know, John mentions that these things are going to happen shortly, but in God's timing, what could that mean? <laughs> you know, 10 days is, if, if, if a day is like 1,000 years and 1,000 years is like a day, what could 10 days be? <laughs> 10,000 years. We may have a lot longer to go here, folks. And we may want God to come back quickly, but the point is there in those verses, in, in verse 9, is that there's a lot of work to be done. God, because God doesn't want anyone to perish. 
Every soul is precious. He loves every single one of his creations and, and he wants us to be thinking that same way. Verse 7, look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy written in this scroll. That we need to always be ready for Christ's second coming. When he comes, may he find us faithful. Many things have clearly defined beginning and ends. We begin reading a book, we, then we finish it. We buy a house, we sell it. We begin a job, the job may end at some point. Transcending all our starts and stops of life is the timelessness of God who is there at the beginning and He will be there at the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the A and the Z. But He also has an enduring nature that stretches way beyond the range of our human imagination. And this is illustrated by the New Jerusalem, and this fit city that's described here in this chapter that there's going to be a city with unending day, an ever-flowing river of life, an ever-bearing tree of life, ceaseless worship, countless ways to serve, priceless building materials. It will never spoil, never fade. It will be new forever and ever. And such will be the relationship with our Lord. That relationship will be eternally consistent, pure, and true. And we're blessed to have the revelation of John in this vision. And may we be faithful in keeping the lessons that we've learned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for a time to study your word, to be reminded of how important it is to stay true to your purpose, your plan, and the importance of, of following your will. Father, we pray that, that each one of us would be there, residing in that city one day, that we would be bringing as many with us as we can. Uh, we pray that what we do today would be to your glory and honor. And it's in Jesus' name we, we pray these things. Amen.